How Donor Opinion Distorts American Parties, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. U.S. candidates will raise and spend billions of dollars in campaign money this year, and citizens have long suspected that all that money buys the donor's influence. But just how different are donors' views in each party from those of citizens? And which do the candidates follow, the donors or the voters? Today, I talked to Jordan Quila of UC Davis about his American Journal of Political Science article, Donors, Primary Elections, and Polarization in the United States. He finds that donors make candidates more inconsistent with their electorates and increase polarization, but Republican nominees are less responsive to their electorates. I also talked to Neil Malhotra of Stanford University about his Public Opinion Quarterly article with David Brockman, What Do Partisan Donors Want? They find that Republican donors are more conservative than Republican citizens on economic issues, but Democratic donors are more liberal on social issues. Both parties' donors are more pro-globalization than their voters. Quila says scholars have had surprising trouble finding donor influence, but we should be looking for changes in the kinds of candidates who win, not votes bought in Congress. Most Americans would agree or would think that donors have a large influence on the actions of members of Congress, pretty much because of the campaign contributions that they're able to give. However, political scientists have been trying to search for the influence of money in politics and on uh, policies and votes in Congress for decades now with really little success. There's There's been really little evidence that donors and money in politics has affected the levels of polarization that we are seeing in America today, with Democrats and Republicans in Congress being, you know, not really agreeing with each other on really any issues. To actually hit this point home just a little bit, about a week before this paper was accepted by the American Journal of Political Science, there was a good article on 538.com by Maggie Kurth. I don't know if I'm butchering that name or not. I apologize if I am. Called Everyone Knows Money Influences Politics Except Political Scientists. That kind of lays this out a bit of, of kind of what the general public thinks versus what political scientists do. Of course, this isn't to say that political scientists have found no evidence for donor influence. For instance, you know, donors appear to have easier time getting in-person meetings with members of Congress and their staff. But these findings have tended to be limited, uh, and the overall influence found is not necessarily that large. Definitely less influence than most Americans would think. These findings have even led some political scientists to suggest that money has little or no real effect in kind of public policy. And so I kind of argue with that conventional wisdom, basically, that money has in, that that money has a limited influence on public policy and basically votes in Congress. Basically, many scholars have tried to analyze the direct relationship between donations and money and outcomes, but I don't think that's really the appropriate way to look at that relationship between money and who ends up being elected and what their policies are. Just kind of given what we know, that's not really how money influences, right? You're not going to be able to see an elected official get this huge sum of money, and you're going to be able to tell that official changes their votes in Congress because they got that sum of money. That um, It just really isn't going to happen that way. Instead, donors are able to influence votes in Congress by getting people to uh, that they agree with elected in the first place, right? So constantly, we need to kind of analyze that relationship within the congressional district at the district level between the donors and who actually gets nominated from those parties to see what influence donors have actually on who gets elected then. Of course, this was actually the main difficulty in previous works was that it was really hard to get a large sample of donors and a large sample of candidates together um, in order to do this because do you want a lot, enough sample of donors and candidates, you need, you know, 50, 100, 200 candidates. I have, I think, 3,000, 4,000. And you need at least, you know, a certain amount of uh, people per district then. And donors, right? So you need, you know, if you want 50 donors districts, you need 50 times, you know, 3,000 to get, you know, what you may want there. I do find evidence that not only does money influence politics, 
but that the basically the policy preferences, the ideology of congressional candidates and the roll call votes of members of Congress are actually most responsive to the donors in their district. So we're almost going back to the conventional wisdom of Americans a bit where money does appear to be quite influential in politics, but maybe not just in the way that Americans think it is. And Malhotra says their findings fit a conventional story about each party's elites, even if it doesn't fully support donor extremism. I think there is this general conventional story, which is that donors are more extreme and they're producing a lot of polarization. And that's also you know, akin to some of the previous findings on donors in the political science literature. But I would say that there's a secondary conventional wisdom that some academic papers have touched on, not with donors, but with the wealthy, which is more that you have to look at the specific issues. So in many of Fiorina's famous books on polarization, he kind of speculates to this point without, you know, a lot of hard data. But it, it basically the point Fiorina's making is that when you look at these kind of either high level donor dinners or even when congressmen are dialing for dollars, you know, when they the donor class they're in touch with. On the Republican side, they're just very concerned with economic issues like tax cuts and regulations. And on the Democratic side, they're not bringing up New Deal issues related to labor, but they're bringing up kind of post-materialist things about the environment, social issues, abortion, gay marriage, you know, et cetera. So that's kind of the Fiorina argument on like why the Democratic Party's kind of become a little bit more extreme on the social issues and gotten away from their New Deal roots and why the Republican Party seems to be forwarding a lot of economic policies, which are out of step with the median voter, not only generally, but in their own party. So I think it matches this kind of secondary conventional wisdom, but it provides more nuance to the basic finding that, oh, donors are more extreme because maybe they care more about politics, etc. Malhotra's project built on a larger study of changes in elites. David and I have, I think, been generally interested in this topic of the divergent policy preferences of masses and elites and how it may speak to the rise of populism and maybe threats to the kind of democratic order. I think this is like a big question these days. And so especially as elites start gaining more power in the economy and as a result, potentially more political power as well. So I mean, you can go back to Charles Lindblom's work and Hirschman, and there's just a lot of arguments that once you have economic power, there's a lot of reasons that would give you political power as well. And so, you know, one uh, group we were just very interested in studying was Silicon Valley elites, mainly because a lot, a lot of the wealth creation has been in that sector. And if you just look at the top companies by market capitalization in the U.S., I believe the majority of them are technology companies now, whereas I think it used to be oil and gas and finance probably 10, 20 years ago. And as part of that project, you know, we also collected just as a baseline data on just donors, because I think people would be interested in knowing, is this something specific to technology elites or is it also specific just to rich people generally? And then, you know, we decided that was like a very extensive data collection effort. And so we wanted to delve more into the donor specifically, including seeing could we replicate it in other data sets that has analyzed donors as well. But I think kind of this project is part of a penumbra of research on kind of how elite attitudes differ from mass attitudes and what that says about our politics. 
and more about whether I think this general neoliberal consensus, which has dominated American politics since World War II, has like some fragile bases to it. Anquila has been looking for a long time at money and politics, trying to find the path of influence. The core of my research is looking at representation of elected officials in America, right? How well do elected officials actually represent their constituents in their states or in their districts that they come from? And I've always been interested in representation and the influence of money. Actually, my first foray into analyzing this influence came back in undergrad when I was an undergrad at Cornell College in Iowa, looking at the relationship between PAC contributions and votes and, and vote share in the in the general election. Uh, and basically, you know, you know, I was I was basically uh, taking a political parties class with my undergrad advisor, Barb Trish, and we were required to kind of do this quantitative analysis for class. And I'm like, let me, you know, let me look at influence of money in politics. Uh, I come from a working class background. It seems to me money influences everything. So, of course, money influences politics, right? Uh, I was wrong. I looked at that relationship between PAC contributions and the share of the vote in general election, and I found absolutely no relationship. So after that, I really started to learn and, and get into this more about how little evidence there is uh, in political science research for the influence of money in politics. And I ended up going to the University of California, Davis, to get my PhD, uh, with the intent on analyzing that influence of money in politics. But again, I realized that there really wasn't a lot of appropriate data to analyze it in the proper context that I think it should be. Luckily for me, uh, Adam Bonica at Stanford created the Dime data set that was kind of the first to produce these ideological scores for large numbers of donors. And so with his data set, I was actually able to rework my dissertation. So it's been a long, it's been a long process this paper has been. And so this is kind of the main part of my dissertation then. And so that, that whole process has taken years basically to, uh, to finally look at that influence of, of donors on policy preferences. Overall, Quila's findings show that candidates are responsive to donors, and that helps polarize American politics. In my paper, I examine kind of the influence of donors on the ideological polarization of Republicans, Democratic nominees for the House of Representatives. And what I find is, is perhaps the strongest evidence to date that the influence of donors in primary elections is a source of political polarization in the United States. These results suggest that Republicans and Democratic nominees for Congress, specifically the U.S. House, are more responsive ideologically to the partisan donors in their district than they are to their primary or general electorates. As donors take more ideologically extreme positions, primary winners take more extreme positions. They're actually further from their district. Ideological Democrats appear to be most responsive to their donors and primary constituencies, while Republicans appear to be only responsive to their donor constituencies. Overall, uh, I find that the polarizing effects of donor constituencies tend to dominate any moderating effects of, of elections, leading to extreme nominees and ultimately members of Congress. I think probably the most important implication, and there are many, I think, potential implications from these works, but I think the most important is probably that these findings provide evidence that affluent Americans may be able to actually use their wealth to influence political outcomes. Nominees to the U.S. House appear to be in, or, uh, inordinately respond to their partisan donor base, which is a group that is disproportionately wealthy, uh, which may ultimately lead to policy outcomes that favor the wealthy over the middle class and the poor. He had to compare candidates to donors, primary voters, and citizens on the same ideological spectrum. The real main contributions of my paper is the ability to kind of construct a data set that actually contains these ideological measures for House candidates, as well as these important district-level constituencies, such as donors and primary constituencies and general electorates, just because it's been difficult to do that in the past. And so what I've been able to do then is I have about, you know, 3,000, 4,000 candidates, and then I'm able to actually then get their ideological scores, and I'm actually able to then take ideological scores from 
all of these, you know, from these other surveys. So none of the, no data set has all of these things together. I have to basically combine like a dozen different, you know, data sets and data things from different years to, to actually make these things. So I actually take the donor information and the candidate ideology from Bonica's dime data set. I then take constituency information about the general electorate and the, and the primary constituency from the cooperative congressional election study. And then I use other data sets from my advisor, Walt Stone, that actually allows me to like place these things together onto the same scale, which is really important for understanding this because most of our ideas and theories behind what actually is affecting policy preferences of members of Congress requires us to actually have these measures on the scale to actually properly kind of test them. And so doing this and being able to bring them all together was really a key contribution, I think. He found donors are a more extreme constituency, but there are differences by party. Across party, you tend to see that donors are more extreme than they're than the average, let's say for Republicans, the average Republican donor is more extreme than the average Republican, and the average Democratic donor is more extreme than the average Democrat. Although there's a lot more consistency or similarity between Republican partisan constituencies and Democratic ones. But in, in general, too, donors tend to be more extreme than members of Congress. And so what I what I tend to find is that that, you know, uh, you know, incumbents are most moderate, open seat candidates are, are next, followed by uh, party challengers, and that really it seems to be that, that donors are kind of the more extreme constituency that does maybe affecting kind of what's going on. There's a big difference between Republicans and Democrats in terms of that relationship between donors and primary constituencies. So for in every single district, the Democratic donor constituency in my measure is more extreme than the Democratic primary constituency. For Republicans, it's a lot more mixed. Only about 60% of Republican donor constituencies are actually more extreme than the primary constituency. Uh, and actually, the average Republican donor constituency is really, really close on the seven-point scale to the average Republican partisan constituency. So they're, they're, they're pretty... They, you still see that donors are more extreme for Republicans, but you see a lot more overlap in terms of and similarity in terms of their policy preferences with uh, the rank-and-file members of their party than you do for Democrats. Malhotra and Brockman focused on party differences, comparing donors with voters in each party on what they believe by issue area. The main goal of the paper is to produce descriptive statistics comparing the policy views of donors and the mass public. So the goal is to try to get both groups of people answering the same questions at the same time so we can kind of compare them and make some descriptive inferences that might help people who are doing their own research on the topic and then people uh, in the general world. And um, I think there have been surveys of donors before, but we wanted to focus on two new aspects of the survey. So first is we wanted to specifically oversample and target very, very large donors, including people who donate you know, tens of thousands of dollars, because we view them as qualitatively different than people who barely donate enough to show up in FEC data. And moreover, we wanted to ask questions that got at various dimensions of policy issues, um, including economic issues, social issues, and issues related to globalization to look at heterogeneity by party and policy domain. And I think by doing these two things, we produced a lot of new findings uh, that have touched on things people have known, but we never really uh, were able to compare donors and voters directly. So the first thing we found is that it is true that overall, 
donors are more extreme in their policy preferences than the mass public. But there actually is a lot of heterogeneity depending on what party you're looking at and what policy domains. So for economic issues, Democratic donors are um, about the same as Democratic voters, uh, whereas Republican donors are much more economically conservative than their voters. And the pattern is actually flipped for social issues, which is that there's a lot of similarity between donors and voters on social issues. But on economic issues, Republican donors are much more economically conservative and extreme. And on the globalization domain, both groups of donors are more pro-globalism than their counterparts in the mass public. So although we don't really have evidence of causality in this paper, it does kind of point a picture, which a lot of people have hinted at, which is that the donor class is sort of moving the Republican Party more economically extreme. Uh, It's moving the Democratic Party potentially more socially extreme and is creating this chasm between masses and elites on issues related to globalization. For example, universal healthcare attitudes and same-sex marriage show the patterns of differences by party. I'll give you an example of a few issues which I think kind of show the pattern. We asked about a lot of issues, and not every issue matches this pattern, and we kind of you know, transparently explain that in the paper. But these are just, I think, some typical issues which reflect the pattern overall. So, for example, we asked about universal health care, and 52% of Republican donors strongly disagree that the government should make sure that all Americans have health insurance, and only 23% of Republican citizens felt the same way. So that gap of 52 and 23, about 30 percentage points, is humongous and really kind of does show that even a lot of Republicans offer a lot of liberal attitudes on economic issues related to redistribution. And the donor class in the Republican Party just has very different views. I I mean, they're much more conservative economically, more similar to what you would call like economic libertarianism. On the other hand, if you look at the social issues, they tend to be pretty similar. So I'll give one example of that. Uh, So for example, if you look at same-sex marriage, the Republican citizens who strongly oppose same-sex marriage, you know, is about 30 percentage points. And that's like very similar percentage points in the Republican donors. Um, If you just look at the distributions on that issue, it's just they're almost identical with like a slight majority of people of Republican donors and citizens opposing same-sex marriage. On the other hand, if you look at the, the Democratic Party on very similar issues, you find that if anything, the donor class is a little bit more liberal on economic issues. So if you look at the health insurance question that I mentioned earlier, Democratic donors are actually like way more likely to support universal health care with over 75% strongly favoring it. Whereas in Democratic citizens, that number is a little bit under 50 percentage points. But on the social issues, for example, same-sex marriage, the Democratic donor class is much more extreme. So that's they get almost universal support among the donors for same-sex marriage. And among Democratic citizens, um, only about a little bit more than 50% strongly support it. So those are just some examples of where you have kind of divergence 
across party and issue domain in the gap between donors and voters. But elite mass divides on globalization appear in both parties. On the globalization items, this pattern is much stronger for the Democratic sample than the Republican sample. And and part of that is, I think, just the Republican Party as a whole has moved more anti-globalization over time. But you still see the results. It's just that they're much more dramatic for the Democratic group. But one kind of common question that we that's asked in public opinion research is, should we pay less attention to problems overseas and concentrate problems at home? So over 30% of Democratic citizens strongly agree with this, uh, whereas among Democratic donors, that number is between 5 and 10%. So that's like a pretty big gap. And then you see something similar among Republican donors, which is that only... Over about 50% of Republican voters say that we should pay less attention to problems overseas. And that same percentage point is the same figure as 25% among Republican donors. So that's like very similar 25 percentage point gaps between both donors and voters in both parties, even though overall Democrats are more supportive of, of globalization. Extremism just means big divides here, not necessarily far left or far right views. We're not trying to say objectively or normatively what's like an extreme opinion, but more just like comparing what the beliefs are. So, I mean, if you don't want to use same-sex marriage as an example, the death penalty is also like a very nice example where, you know, there's maybe more division in the public. But the majority of Democratic citizens are in support of the death penalty, whereas the majority of Democratic donors are against the death penalty. Whereas among Republican citizens and donors, both basically have identical strong support for the death penalty. So I guess our paper doesn't really delve into the question of what the true, you know, fixed point of extreme or not extreme is relative to the status quo, but just kind of what the gap between the two groups are. They match their results from regular surveys that include donors. Greg Huber and Seth Hill had written a paper, which is not part of the regular CCES, but it was something they did specially, which was to link the CCES, which has just, you know, such a high number of voters to the FEC records. And so they're figuring, oh, well, we're doing uh, a large scale survey anyway. So why not just link to the FEC records and then we can compare donors and non-donors. So when you do that, you're and you're not specifically trying to sample donors like we did, you're just going to have a, the typical donor is going to donate a lot less money, which is fine. But this gives us a great opportunity to see if our findings were kind of idiosyncratic to our sampling strategy or our questions. So we did like a pre-registered replication where we said, these are the questions that are going to be assigned to these three domains. And then we're going to run the analyses, um, including kind of you know what the code would be on the Huber and Hill data set. And so we did that, and generally the findings matched up. Now, if you look at the Huber and Hill data set, there's a lot of differences. So their questions that they're asking about are very different than ours. So their globalization items was were a lot about military intervention, because that's what the CCES was asking about at the time. And ours are more general or about free trade and immigration. But I think I view that as an advantage 
which is if you had the exact same study and the exact same questions that you were trying to replicate, it would get to the narrow replication point, but it wouldn't get to the conceptual replication, which is, you know, is this general finding robust to different types of questions in different contexts and the different way researchers approach this question? And we found that it was. And they found that the top 1% have even more differentiated views following the patterns. Everything kind of I mentioned is basically stronger among the top 1% donors. So all the patterns about heterogeneity by policy and party just become stronger in effect size and statistical significance among this smaller group of top 1% donors. And so after we weight the data, you know, that is going to be half our population. So even though it's top 1%, they're actually half of our data because it was a specific oversample. So I think that kind of shows the findings even more. Whereas I don't think we're trying to make any causal statement about the amount you donate in your extremity, but descriptively, it does show that if we believe the top 1% are more influential than the top 99%, just based on the amount and their involvement, all the patterns and discrepancies in views that I mentioned are even more heightened. And then I think this does tie to research about just generally wealthy people. So Elizabeth Rigby and Corey Max Solomon published a paper very similar time period as ours, doing kind of similar analyses, but just using survey data on income and looking at kind of wealthy or you know, high income people, low income people. And they found a very similar pattern of results where you basically see that in the Democratic Party, the masses are much less socially liberal. And in the Republican Party, the masses are much less economically conservative. Huila tried to assess causality, finding that primaries increase the importance of donors. You know, while electoral success may ultimately depend on voters, even if you get enough votes to win an election, you can't actually win that election unless you have enough resources to run a campaign. Elections at all levels are costing more and more money. And only those who are able to generate enough of that money are actually able to have any chance of kind of winning. So really, this puts donors in an advantageous position during the primary to constrain the policy of those that are potentially nominated. As Kathleen Bond et al. in their 2012 work note, this is a theory of political parties, groups, policy demands, and nominations in American parties, sorry, in American politics. Contributors are, are particularly advantaged during the primary because candidates must compete amongst members of their own party for resources. So there's no kind of party label to, to help you to kind of generate who you're going to give money to. And the resources necessary to actually win a primary are often small relative to the general election anyway. And so I would actually say that in many districts, the, the vast majority, there really are no trade-offs for these parties. In, in many districts, you win your primary, you're going to win the general election regardless of how extreme you are ideologically. So in many congressional districts, save for one party, donors can potentially, can potentially actually try to demand as many policy concessions as possible. There really aren't a lot of competitive districts, and in those districts, it, it can become an issue. But overall, it really seems that they're able to kind of make these demands, or at least potentially make these demands, without losing. Although we do find there, there's research by uh, Andrew Hall, I believe, who uh, find that when you do pick a more extreme candidate in a, in a primary election, it can lead to the other party winning the election. But I think in most cases, it's, it's unlikely to make a difference in the election. And he may have found a reason for the effect. Donors do veer away from candidates who aren't close to them ideologically. What I was trying to do is, was kind of determine if the relationship I find, if that Cisco relationship is based on the actual influence of donors or, you know, what we kind of refer to as homophily, right? That is, you know, could it just be that donors are not, in, that, that nominees are not influenced by donors, but they just kind of resemble them. 
because, you know, nominees and members of Congress, all, you know, almost always live in their congressional district and they have high lo- higher levels of education and income that are similar to donors. And actually, you know, many of them are donors themselves. And so as a result, you know, it's possible that I'm not finding actual influence, but resemblance. And so this is kind of getting at a first cut at just seeing it. Is there even conditions present for uh, influence, right? Are at the district level, are donors actually, you know, are, by, are they actually giving money based at the donor, you know, based on how close you're ideologically? And I find that it does seem to be the case. And so, you know, donors may actually be then demanding these policy concessions in exchange for resources. But then again, this just suggests that the conditions are present. It doesn't actually mean that we conclude that the social relationship we're seeing is because of this influence. And so I think this is kind of a, a future step that needs to be done and works is to try to kind of parse out that, that relationship and that influence. But he acknowledges it's hard to see which came first, given that ideology is measured through campaign donations. So the first thing I try to do to kind of bypass that link between House nominees and House donors is I only use donors at the district level that contributed to a presidential campaign, which I think is a good idea, but I don't know if that was too persuasive. I think what was persuasive was that I, to ensure my findings weren't solely based on my choice of candidate ideology, using the Bonica data, using the dime data, was to actually use different measures of ideological scores for candidates, put those onto the same scale using the same methods that I used before, and then test those relationships. So in particular, I replicated my findings using probably the most common measure of congressional ideology, DW nominate, which is based on roll call votes in Congress. This can be found in the appendix of my paper. And then when I run these analyses using those measures, the findings are substantively similar. Uh, I find that votes of members of Congress and the House representatives are more responsive to their partisan donor constituencies than to their primary or their general electorates. And, you know, there's no circularity issues with the DW nominate measure like there is with the Bonica measure. Malhotra says their findings fit with Quila's paper, but he says we need to look for issue differences. I think that paper is trying to get at the causality more. And, you know, I think causality is very hard in this specific research question. But looking at, you know, overtime responsiveness is is one way to do it. So I think nothing we're saying in our paper is inconsistent with that one. And I would just kind of be interested to, to look at a lot more of the heterogeneity by party and issue domain. Because I think one thing, one hypothesis that our descriptive data would suggest is that the Republican responsiveness issues would be much stronger on the economic dimension. So we'll see if that's true, if you look at that data. If you don't condition by issue domain, and the most of the issues you're looking at are economic issues, then you could produce results that look like this. That, so I would just kind of point that out. I think the issue heterogeneity is important to just test for. And Quila says the donors may be changing, but it's hard to see who is following who. The story, you know, kind of goes similarly, right, where we do really see that, you know, conservative donors, and, and I think you're, you're going to talk to Dave Rockman about this too, where conservative donors are, more, are, are, sorry, Republican donors are more conservative on economic issues and Democratic donors are more conservative on social issues. And we've kind of seen that shift over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, right, where economics has seemed to shift to more conservative positions in terms of what we were talking about, and what, you know, what is kind of the debate and socialism has shifted kind of more liberal in that way. It's, it's hard to tell if, it, if there's actually a change in donors in this, right? I mean, all my data comes from 2002 to 2010. I don't have anything before or after right now. And it, you know, it's unclear. I, I'd be really interested to see like how the composition of donors has changed over time, but it's just really difficult to do. And so I imagine there's probably been some changes in that way. And I think there's probably got to be some sort of feedback movement here somewhat where, you know, donors are changing some and then 
to get money than, you know, they're kind of going out, you know, uh, you know, candidates are the ones that are able to actually come out and actually run for office that are kind of changing, which is then changed who donors maybe are contributing to. And so it's really difficult to say, you know, how those changes actually affect what's going on. He says politicians are still reflecting their donors. Once again, um, you know, this is 2002, 2010. So one of the things that I'm not really able to account for is, you know, the Citizens United ruling kind of more outside groups and their spending on this, which is something I want to kind of look at in the future is, you know, how is that kind of affect the district of relationship for donors potentially? But I mean, I think you are seeing that a little bit. I mean, you're seeing that with some of these kind of primary challenges, maybe they're seeing um, within Illinois, you know, uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, although, you know, DW nominate kind of paints her as a more moderate member than do, But I, I do think you'll kind of see a little bit more of that in part because of just the fact that you're seeing, I mean, we're seeing right now, right during this, you know, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, where is the money going from members of Congress? Where where are they, you know, seem to be most concerned about in terms of helping the economy? And it's not necessarily average Americans. And and I think, you know, you can see from there that you're, you're seeing, you know, kind of a disconnect between members of, of both parties in some serious cases. And, and the overall electorate itself in terms of what they're looking for. So I do think that, that we should still see some of this. What I would suggest, you know, if I was a Democratic operative trying to, you know, basically create the most, you know, you know, have the most, you know, Democratic, most partisan, most, you know, uh, ideological liberal people in my in my caucus when I'm in the House of Representatives, is I'd basically take any safe district that Democrats had and I'd try to run base, you know, which is, a, you know, a lot of the districts they hold. And you could run basically anybody of any, almost any ideological extremity in that district, and they're going to get elected in the general election so long as they win the primary, which I think is a little bit what we kind of saw with the Tea Party and Republicans, which is they found that they're more extreme. They're able to kind of knock off, you know, some potential, you know, more moderate Republicans. Doesn't mean they're necessarily going to lose the general election. They might, but in most districts, it's not going to make any difference. And so, you know, whether or not I'm, I'm not sure I'm predicting that this should happen. But if, you know, Democrats want, you know, to, to kind of have the same kind of power you kind of see Republicans do from that wing, which, you know, may not be the case, I would definitely suggest trying to do that. Although that's a whole different ballgame then, too. Malhotra says future research should look at issue-specific trends and top donors. Two big takeaways are, is that one, I think looking at heterogeneity by party and policy is going to be very important for those scholars. Because if you just look at everything on a single issue dimension, you might be obscuring a lot of differences and you could be producing null or weak findings, whereas the results could be a lot stronger. Because keep in mind, if we had just not separated our results out by policy domain, which we did a priori, the results would just look a lot weaker, right? And so I think people who are studying donor influence should take that into account. And especially now we have multiple papers replicating this finding. And then I think people should be looking at the top donors specifically, because I think putting more casual donors in there does dilute these effects a bit. And especially as we get access to more casual donor data, small do small donors, like from ActBlue, things like that. But I think kind of the general takeaway of the paper hopefully will inform influence as people try to look at policy effects, which is, you know, is the, is the donor class a explanatory variable for why the Republican Party seems to be out of step economically and potentially why the Democratic Party seems to be out of step socially with their own voter groups. So even though we don't really have causal evidence, I hope the people who are doing those causal studies will, will look at our paper and, and take something away from it. Huila says donor effects are likely operating through limiting the pool of candidates more than vote buying. Each individual candidate is not necessarily having this overall strategy kind of based off of, 
know where donors are and where, you know, the candidates are. And they're kind of, you know, trying to pinpoint their, idea, you know, their policy preferences kind of based on that. I think a lot of this, I mean, I think a lot of what, what occurs in terms of who gets elected, who ends up running for office, who they listen to has to do with these networks, has to do with, you know, who is even possibility to be a candidate for for the House of Representatives in any district. Because there really aren't that many candidates out there. And so really there's a limited pool there. And so I think that, you know, these type of the, the what really the money is doing is it's limiting the pool of candidates that could possibly kind of get elected. And so it's not necessarily that, you know, these candidates are going out and specifically doing these things. It's that these are the ones being contacted, these are the ones going, and then they don't realize they're necessarily out of step with their districts because their their networks are telling them that they're not. And so I think this actually works really well together in terms of 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 how they're getting elected, why they're getting elected, and why they're not, you know, they don't seem to be as responsive to these groups as they are. And so that seems like that could be one of the mechanisms as to why they're not as responsive is because, you know, they are resembling these, these, you know, the donors. And then they're only hearing from people that are maybe donors or have similar policy preferences to donors. But Malhotra acknowledges that donors could just be one category of party elites, with differences just indicating broader divides between the parties and their voters. I think we can't speak to if this is the donations per se because there's a lot of features of donors that are similar to other activists. So, you know, with donors, their kind of resource that they have, they can expend on the margin is their money. And for other people, maybe the resource they can expend on the margin is their time. And you would have similar processes, like you really are care about a few issues and are extreme about them. And I think if you replicated this analysis among convention delegates or party activists, which I hope people do, I think you would find very similar things. So I think we just substantively believe that donors are important because they fund campaigns in a system where you know raising money is very important. But if you look at, for example, convention delegates, and I wouldn't even just talk about national convention delegates, but there's many states where state-level convention delegates and local are very important. And maybe those people are not uh, donating as much, but they can influence a lot by mobilizing voters and you know, helping pick primary can- uh, winners, things like that. And so I think like, if you found similar results, it would, I think, speak generally to this issue of who is most involved in American democracy and are their opinions distorted in any specific way. Next, Quila wants to look at changes in outside group spending and what's driving the candidates now. What's happening now, right? I've got all this out there. I'm still, you know, pushing some things up my dissertation, looking at one, one thing looking at is kind of party conventions. So, you know, some states, Utah, Virginia, Connecticut, and some districts of Virginia don't even hold primary elections. So I'm looking at kind of what effect, you know, other things that might affect the, the relationship between these constituencies and the policy preferences members of Congress choose. Uh, but I think one of the things I want to do, right, is, is you know, what's happening now? What is happening since? You know, with this new redistricting between 2012 and 2018 elections, you know, what is the influence of these outside groups? Does it affect the the influence of individual donors in the district? Does it not affect it? Does it augment it in some way? I think those are kind of really important things to think about because obviously, you know, there's a whole lot of speculation and argument about the the influence of the Citizens United ruling and what that might mean. And I think this is one way to kind of really look at what are the kind of these differences, what changes might we see in these relationships that we haven't really been able to look at too in, in depth before. And Malhotra is taking on a broader look at whether a long-running elite consensus is increasingly being challenged. I think this general topic of like what the elite consensus, policy consensus is, 
and how that might be being challenged or dismantled, I think is a very important topic because I think there's been a lot of trust in elite consensus for many, many decades. And it's being challenged a lot in both parties where you have a lot of things that um, on, on the kind of economic issues, which I think a lot of people would view as like very extreme, but a lot of the survey data is showing that many people actually agree with those positions. And also in terms of, you know, how we're viewing globalization is sort of like a default Pareto superior thing that's being challenged. So I think Dave and I would love to, in the future, look at more of these type of elites groups and try to get at maybe the differences to see like, is it donor specifically? Is it, you know, business elite specifically? In our prior work, we found that Silicon Valley elites are actually very different than donors. That's not just that some people are rich and some people are poor. So I think more investigation into that, looking at a lot of the groups you're talking about, like who are at these party conventions? What about people in other very strong industries like finance, things like that would be great to study. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Please review our recent episodes at niskanencenter.org or anywhere you find your podcasts. Thanks to Jordan Quila and Neil Mahotra for joining me. Please check out Donors, Primary Elections, and Polarization in the United States and What Do Partisan Donors Want? And then listen in next time. Mm-hmm.